Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We also thank the Management Learning Journal for their wonderful support. Now on with the show. Welcome back. Today we conclude episode 97, where Michael, Pedro, and Tom are discussing the 2009 movie Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman as Nelson Mandela and Matt Damon as Francois Pinar, directed by Clint Eastwood. In part two, we will examine the contemporary lessons of the movie and the real-life events that inspired it. If you missed part one or to find out more about the movie, please visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We now rejoin the conversation. So in part one, we talked a lot about the movie itself and some organizational lessons we can take from it, from the responsibility and the way organizations deal with social issues, to the way that they are able to manage themselves, to ensure there is an inclusive, safe culture for everyone. But think in broader terms and more historical terms, the movie, of course, talks a lot about change. And more in particular, about the challenge of bringing about change in a new system and undoing certain structures, right? As we referred in part one, an important scene is when Nelson Mandela gives the speech to the public servants, right? And we can see that, that he's trying to transmit a message and, in a way, cultivate a sense that while he's envisioning some undoing or some values that existed, that of course were based on racism, he also wanted people to feel that they can be part of such change, right? And in a way, he's trying, I think, to appeal to their sense of office, to their sense of values as public servants in working towards the best of their country, towards the common good, so to speak, right, towards a high-purpose goal. And of course, this involves, as we talked about in part one, a set of symbols and ideas and inspiration, really. But also, and this we don't see it as much in the movie, the undoing of certain structures and values that were in place, right? Yeah, to, to give an example on that, undoing of, uh, of practices. I uh, put this uh, episode, I took uh, along my uh, copy of the uh, Long Walk to Freedom, the book on uh, the biography of uh, Nelson Mandela, of course. And I want to read just a, a small paragraph on undoing this practice. So this is towards the end of his uh, prison time. And he uh, has collaborated or at least discussed changes with people in power. And now he refers to the president, the cleric, the last uh, president of the uh, apartheid era, he says. In his inaugural address, Mr. De Klerk said his government was committed to peace and that it would negotiate with any other group committed to peace. But his commitment to a new order was demonstrated only after his inauguration when a march was planned in Cape Town to protest at police brutality. It was to be led by Bishop Tutu and the Reverend Alan Busak. Under President Botha, the march would have been banned. Marches would have defied that ban and violence would have resulted. The new president lived up to his promise to ease restrictions on political gatherings and permitted the march to take place. 
only asking that the demonstrators remain peaceful. A new and different hand was on the tiller. So I would say a, a perfect example of how kind of precursors to change were already kind of developing and, and set in place um, before uh, Mandela's release and then Price to Power, of course. And the practices, the allowed practices uh, within the apartheid regime already were uh, starting to change toward the end of, end of his uh, prison time. So it set the scene or it provided the grounds for a transition in power and also a transition in expected behavior among the citizens of uh, South Africa. So having them the rights to gather and to protest as a means of allowing their discontent uh, with the system in place. It would be easy. All you knew about the story was the movie to think that, you know, the context was pretty close knit and tied and that that was the beginning and the end. And of course, uh, when we take the broader look, obviously there is a lot more to the story. When I first thought about this movie and as, as an episode, deinstitutionalization was like the word that was coming to my mind. I, what I saw, in, not just in the movie, but you know, bringing in the broader context, not just what it became was before, but also what is after, which we'll, uh, I'll get to shortly, you can kind of see the process of a deinstitutionalization running in practice. I have frequently used one particular model of deinstitutionalization when I talk with uh, uh, my students about uh, change, because sometimes we get uh, too enamored with trying to bring in the novel and not spend enough time talking about divesting the old or the uh, the no longer needed. And uh, this model, Christine Oliver uh, wrote this in 1992, and she basically talks about three different pieces or three different phases it's not really phases, but three different sources of, uh, of forces that uh, act upon an institution to make it break up. And uh, one of them is the initiation and enabling of it, which, uh, Michael, you brought in perfectly well. Competitive pressures, functional pressures, and social pressures. I think what you were actually talking about there is, uh, is a social pressure where there's a recognition that the old way of doing something was going to produce a very, very bad result. And so the pressure caused a change in the action. That can come about in various different ways. Then there's things that moderate that. She put on inertial pressures and entropic pressures as two different pressures that act in opposition. So what you're seeing, probably in the movie, you can point to some inertial pressures where people were holding on to on the, the old way of thinking. One as, uh, as thinking towards wanting to rise up and take revenge, the other side trying to keep uh, things the way that they are or go back to the status quo ante. And then you had the entropic pressures, which was pressures to try to churn, to try to break up this ossified practice of racism, make it dissipate, make it go away. Erosion and discontinuity, or which is to say to stop doing it in the total is kind of like the final eventual result. But you can kind of see that at every step of the way, because the transition of, you know, breaking away an old habit, even if it's an old habit you want to get rid of, the process of breaking it away is going to provide opportunities for you to look back and say, well, we don't know how to stop doing it comfortably. And sometimes going back to the old ways, uh, you know, you or you risk reverting, even if you don't want to. 
Now, the movie and the story of Mandela would suggest that the way that this came about, the way that disinstitutionalization came about was through the personal efforts of a single individual. Well, primarily driven by a single individual, I should say. There were lots of other people who clearly were helpful. Sometimes uh, the circumstances or sometimes a challenger or a, a competitive viewpoint may come in and be that driver of change. Um, but if we don't think about how to get rid of the old, uh, sometimes it does get in the way of being able to instill something new. So this is an interesting account. And I think that the importance of paying attention to the old is because all of this, it takes place in the interaction, right, among people. And the movie shows a little bit of that. I'm channeling my mentor, Ruthan Hughes, and who always says that change is a product of interaction, right? If you follow social theory to natural inclusion, yes. In the movie, we see that the interaction in the security detail or the interaction between the um, Francois, the captain of the team, in his home, and he has, I think, a domestic worker who is black, right? You can see there is this delicate moment, for example, when the security details talk about that they use a different name for the president, his tribal name, I believe, right? And who and what, you know, can call him that in the domestic space of Francois, and we see the domestic worker and the extent in which she's included or not in some discussions, right? And I think that in movie there is a little bit of a progress because in the final scene we see that she goes with the rest of his family to the stadium to cheer. So there is all of these things that happen in the interaction. And dealing with the old which is in place means that there are from physical setups to routines to procedures to expectations that we bring when we meet people that we carry, right? that need to be articulated, discussed, felt, lived. All I'm trying to say in this roundabout way is that paying attention to what exists is very important and that, of course, creates some kind of path dependency. But we should look at that at the level of the interaction and what is there that people bring when they come together and try to accomplish something different or create something different or push further some expectations and ideas and norms that were so prevalent to that point. It's, it's a great, uh, I mean, this is an element also that's, that's also raised of course, often in relation to resistance to change, right? And um, this resistance is connected to what is actually in place that is valued and why is it understandable that people react to such elements being in place, taking away or being changed in transformation of an organization, would say then, not, not so much in society. If we take resistance to change in organizations, this is also about what is the value of the old and what could be retained from the old, used within new practices or new interactions that uh, that being set up or that are being valued more in the new way of uh, of organizing and doing th things. So there's quite some literature on on, on this um, resistance to change and the way in which the old plays a major role in understanding resistance and maybe also providing room and also providing perspective for the old within change rather than only wanting to overcome resistance to change, right? So it's not only in redirecting the ideas of people resisting change, but also seeing what the underlying values that they are expressing through uh, their resistance to change. 
and how can the old then become part of the new provide some continuity also in relation to change yeah and the discussions of of old versus new and uh, in sports it is interesting because what's old becomes new again in sports a good example of that is something that we frequently see in american sports anyway where a team that uh, either changes ownership or perhaps has had a string of really bad seasons will decide that it's going to shake things up by rebranding itself sometimes this is welcomed the old uh, brand is sort of associated with losing and so people sort of welcome the rebranding as a chance to see it anew. But more often than not, the end result is one that's a bit more disruptive and uh, ultimately not welcomed. And then after about five or six years, and it seems to be about five or six years in the examples I'm thinking of, they revert back to the original brand. Kind of tying this back to Invictus, one of the things that uh, the movie was criticized for, I don't know that it's a fair criticism, but I'll, I'll just put it out there anyway, was the fact that the story ends with the Springboks winning the uh, Rugby World Cup and Nelson Mandela coming forth wearing a Springboks jersey, presenting the trophy to Francois Pinar in a scene that was also captured. Uh, it basically replicates the real presentation. But of course, the story didn't end there because there was still a lot of work to be done, you know, afterwards to continue the momentum and to continue the work of trying to rebuild and and unify the country. It's not just a matter of resistance to change. It's also the challenge of trying to prevent change that does succeed from being reversed. And that's a uh, that's that's a tough one. That's a really tough one for leaders because sometimes, um, like in this the sports branding example that I gave, you can imagine a number of cases where there would be a lot of appeal to reverse change, even if the change was in some way beneficial, just because it's that extra step of going through the mental challenge of letting go of the past. It's it's so difficult for people to welcome or to fully integrate into themselves. So inertia is certainly a part, but I also think that there is something about pushback that we talked about before. And we see that in so many different topics. We are talking about the broader concern about social issues, diversity that organizations have embraced. And of course, there is people that just label that as wokeism. So, but we can have a similar conversation for any other thing. And I think that many of the things that we have come to take for granted are being questioned. I think there is something I mentioned of struggles and conflict But I wanted to go to a different direction because I think that the movie has a lot of poetry, but not as much plumbing, right? These are the famous words of Jim March. We talked about that understanding organizations require understanding both dimensions and leadership in particular, right? That leaders trade on the poetry and the symbols or whatever, but we also should not lose attention to all the infrastructure and policies and procedures that need to be in place to realize something. I was just wanted to put that on the table regarding all these topics we have been talking about, from leadership to change to social issues. We talked about the symbolic dimension, the institutional norms, the inertia that may exist, the culture. But there is also something about the routines, the hiring procedures, the way people are promoted, the career structures, right, incentives and so on and so forth. Which, of course, it's a movie, and we want, you know, it's natural that the movie would represent the higher-purpose ones, but I think that we as organizational researchers can think a little bit more about all of these more mundane aspects 
of realizing such goals. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, this is where uh, if we were to have viewed a documentary, I'm sure that uh, probably some of the plumbing, I think the movie did at least give a nod to some of that, especially in the opening scene. Uh, The opening scene of the movie is a flyover where you move from where the rugby team is practicing and you see the facilities and the field as green and the facilities are clean and everything looks orderly and the players are dressed in good, you know, quality uniforms. And then you fly over a dirt road to the other side uh, across the street where black children are playing soccer, where they are not clothed. They're, they're uh, only wearing T-shirts and shorts, not even socks or shoes. The field is itself just a mud pile. You know, so granted, this is symbolizing what is an aspect of the plumbing of the the environment, to use that metaphor. But at least it is acknowledged. And yes, uh, we are are guilty of that in many other ways, Uh, especially whenever we see vision statements that are PowerPoint deep that don't have a whole lot of substance behind it. Here's the grand vision for the company, and let's leave it to the workers to figure out how to put the planning together. We do shortchange planning, and we even shortchange the sustainment side. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the criticisms that I've had, I've made before, is about how little attention is done to the tail end of change management, that once you actually complete or ba- uh, basically get the plan underway, there's very little that's uh, published out there that talks about, well, for new members coming in, how do they take over responsibility for a change effort that's ongoing, that's going to go for a long duration? The idea of inheriting responsibilities is just not there. And obviously for us, when we look at the backside of Invictus and look at you know all of the glory that occurred at that particular event, there is all of these lingering questions that are left unanswered. How does you know, Mandela run the country. There were considerable work to be done to bring the country up to fulfill the vision uh, that he had, which is far beyond the scope of the movie. Yeah, I like this uh, idea of plumbing and the hard work, the routines, the procedures, the incentives you mentioned, Pedro, made me think of the one uh, episode we did on the uh, Kerr article, Hoping for You Are Rewarding for B, as one example of how incentives play a huge role in the struggles and conflict in uh, in organizations and kind of the plumbing next to the poetry that we uh, that we discussed uh, before. So, and I, I guess in that article, there was also an example on sports, if I remember uh, well. Agreed. I mean, the movie doesn't go into uh, much depth into the plumbing of change. And this is intriguing. We, a lot of management practitioners probably do focus on the visions and the missions and then maybe a, well, a model for a, a change plan. But the hard work that follows from that, the way in which people are socialized, as you mentioned, uh, Tom, into redirecting the organization and continuing uh, to that, how routines play a role in that, and also the way in which the reward structures are uh, set in place and developed. That's a relevant point uh, to make. So continue with the metaphor and with what you both said. I'm thinking about the maintenance that is required of change, right? I think that's what we are indirectly talking about, especially in your example, Tom, of the people, not just the implementation, you know, first moment, 
But once the thing has been in place, what about the new people that join? How they continue that? How we do this daily work that may need to involve new people that need to be brought to speed to continue something that was put in place by someone else, right? So not just thinking about starting changes, but continuing such process. And one thing that I think the movie hints at, and I think that's basically the implicit theory that we see from Mandela, is that there is something about almost like a network that I think he's trying to create. And he talks about when he says that the rainbow nation starts with his own security detail, because I think the hope is that those people there that would resistant or insecure or unsure of how to live and work in such a way, slowly start to learn, you know, in the interaction, how to do that. And that in principle, could be carried out, you know, when they move from that unit to another unit, it can become a model for other people, right? So I think there is this expectation that to some extent, it's almost like a reverberation type of model in which by socializing and piloting something in your own immediate environment, in his case, you know, the people working with him directly, that cannot just signal a commitment, but also maybe carries further with concrete examples what that may mean in practice. Absolutely. And uh, the converse is, or the inverse is also very much true. You want to find a perfect way to kill a change effort immediately is to have the inner circle of the leader exemplify the behaviors, the complete opposite behaviors of what the leader's vision is. I won't go into those stories, mercifully. The difficulty of what we expect of leaders is uh, the way that they manage their time or the demands that are placed on their time. And I think even back uh, you know, in the 1990s, among the leaders who I served for, many of them were really expected to spend an inordinate amount of time looking up and out from their organizations. And some of the things that we're talking about for trying to preserve the continuity of change efforts requires leaders to spend that much more time invested down and in and trying to keep things going. And unfortunately, sometimes what I've experienced is that leaders have every intention of devoting what they feel to be the right amount of effort to try to push things along, but they're more or less prevented from doing so because of stakeholder requirements. And so then what happens is that you get into a pattern of every month or every three months, or in the worst case, every year, I will devote energy, dedicated energy to getting an update on this particular initiative that I started the year previous. And so then what happens is the organization itself devotes energy to the effort only when the uh, deadline for getting that annual meeting together is uh, approaching. (laughs) You see what I mean? And in the meantime, everything else that's ongoing takes priority. The challenge for leaders is how do you, if you can, be able to carve out that time to devote the necessary personal energy to ensure that the momentum isn't lost? Because otherwise, you can see the institutionalization of the change effort itself being deinstitutionalized because other pressures will get in and erode 
at the change effort until it discontinues, right? To me, you're, uh, you're actually kind of describing the, the pressure of funded research projects in a way, right? So the, the accountable uh, moments of check-in of your uh, funders, the stakeholders that you mentioned, uh, that you uh, feel you're obliged to work this, but you're exactly right. It's the management of time and the way in which you continuously provide meaning to these um, ideas that's been laid out in the change effort or in the project or whatever, and, and the way in which the the actions you take and the things you say as a manager or, or leader, and, and even the way in which you embody this change kind of expresses the value of the change. So the continuation, in a way, of the efforts of Mandela were also expressed through probably the clothes he wore and also the example of the paycheck uh, that he kind of wanted. There's this instance in the movie that one third of his paycheck he uh, provides to, uh, to a charity organization. It's the expression, rather, in a way, is the little actions, the little words you uh, you use, and also the how these are resonating in a, in a broader network and visible for this uh, broader network as well. So managing time is often a very invisible element. The way in which people in leadership roles manage their time and how their time is managed by their secretaries as well. The way in which the agenda, their agenda is kind of leading the efforts that the organization is even allowed to uh, to take. So the agenda can be so consuming the change efforts uh, you're trying to uh, to bring about in the uh, in the organization. So I want to jump on that because one interesting aspect and interactions in the movie is the interaction of Mandela and what I believe is his chief of staff, which is a woman. And she's exactly the one at some point is concerned that maybe he's spending too much of the attention, but also time in dealing with this whole rugby story, right? When he's saying that we have much more pressing issues in educational health and so on. Nevertheless, you know, she is orchestrating things, so he's able to do all of that. So there is this um, work that you call invisible. I think it's usually, you know, and it's interesting that it's usually a gender type of work of making something happen, bringing people together, putting things in the agenda, putting, you know, diverging attention, which a resource, right, to some particular topics in the order, right? If anything, and I think that's maybe my main critique of the movie, there is something slightly too masculine about the story, right? Because it puts and creates somewhat of a heroic narrative. And I'm saying this also because I'm slightly annoyed with the way that Mandela complements with air quotes, his chief of staff. I think that nowadays, if you know, we were going to make the movie, it would be more attentive to that. But of course, but it's not just about, you know, the way the complement is working and so on, but also about what gets valued and what kind of storyline we construct about change and what gets seen more or less, right? And it is a little bit of a heroic narrative, which is interesting, of course. And I think that, you know, is there is much to be learned. But I think that the flip side is that we don't see as much of this more mundane daily work that's required, you know, to accomplish things in government, but also to bring change. Yeah, what's funny is uh, now that I think about it and now that you say that, uh, the mon- there's there's a lot more of the mundane that's shown on the rugby side with uh, what Pinar has to deal with than you did on Mandela and Israel as, uh, as president. 
I think uh, the movie was trying to be careful not to promote Pinar to a second protagonist because that would confuse the story. I mean, uh, the the actual relationship, uh, historical relationship, is uh, very much secondary to what is you know the main meat of what those what the story is and what the movie is trying to portray. I guess I'm willing to forgive that critique. It's a fair one, but I think that uh, you know there's there is a natural limit to what you can put in a movie. We could have certainly cut down on some of the physical rugby scenes, maybe included that a little bit more. But it also kind of talks to me about an important part of, you know, what does a leader do when their demands are so great? Because the chief of staff or the second in command or the, the senior leadership team always has a role to play in supporting the leader when it comes to a leader driven change effort. And the question is, to what extent do they carry on continuity-wise where the leader can't provide that continuity? That's something that the movie didn't portray very much beyond just that one individual character. Perhaps the real-life version of that character was actually four or five people who were just condensed for script purposes. You know, that's not unusual, you know, because if you flood the if you flood the movie with uh, so many characters who don't have their own arc, it, it makes a very difficult movie to follow. But in reality, if you're talking about a very, very large, diver- uh, diffuse, diverse, distributed organization, the roles of the senior leader management team all the way down the managerial chain, where what role do they have or must they assume in order to be able to keep the change effort going in the absence of the leader? is something that uh, is is very important. Doesn't require detailed planning. Sometimes it can be just a matter of, does everybody get the vision? Can everybody take what it is that they're doing or plan to do, align it with the vision, and then use it as, yeah, use it as a example of the vision in action, thereby encouraging others to do the same. To an extent that an organization does that, and I've written case studies where that worked very well, well, you know, then you have a greater chance for maintaining some degree of continuity over time without need, without the leader necessarily being involved. But boy, is that hard to set up. You've got to get the leadership team co-opted and on board and doing it before the leader gets yanked off to do their bazillion other things. I think the concept for that would be routinization of charisma, right? Which is the challenge that leaders have, which they may have a charisma and, you know, people are attracted to the ideas, their metaphors resonate. So there's something that reverberates with people. That's something that, you know, it, it works in the interaction. But then how do you translate that beyond the person? And it's a challenge that goes from bringing about change, but it can also be about a startup that is growing and needs to, you know, delegate authority and continue to pursue a purpose, but then there are more new people um, joining. So how do you it's actually a huge problem for organizations in trying to go beyond any personalistic characteristic to bring that to others to carry out such purpose, task, or goal. I would actually be uh, very interested in a retake of this movie and then not taking the heroic uh, narrative, right? So heroic narratives are, are very fun to watch and to read about, and but they're all kind of a very prevailing narrative, especially in... In, in management literature, uh, more specifically the, the popular literature, of course. How would the movie look like if we not follow Mandela, but follow 
his secretary or one of the team members not being the captain of the team. This would lead to a different narrative, but could still be as instructive and informative as uh, the current uh, movie has been. And of course, we want to know more about Mandela. He's a larger-than-life figure, and so it's logical that the movie has been uh, presented in this way. But in terms of our understanding of the roles of different or other people within these uh, change uh, processes within this in the movie, but also if we take it to other organizational contexts and the way in which they are related to in organizational literature, I think that would be an interesting, uh, I mean, there is literature, uh, of, of course, there and there are research studies that, that follow uh, other uh, subjects within organizations, but really focusing on one of them and see how they play an essential role or what their role means to a change initiative. Yeah, that's that's an interesting angle. I'll I'll offer an example where that was kind of uh, done, but it's another. It's a whole different sports setting, and and I I think it gives some insight to what this might look like because uh, there was another major sports event in 1980 that uh, Americans will be very familiar with. It's called the Miracle on Ice, and this is when the U.S. Uh, hockey team, which was composed entirely of uh, collegiate players and amateurs uh, defeated the Soviet Union in the Winter Olympics and won the gold medal. Now, th that was converted into a movie uh, many years later, but there were a number of uh, documentaries and there was a lot of press given to it and to tell the stories of the individual players. And many of them, what you see is, is uh, they, they're coming in from a wide variety of backgrounds. And so they're, you know, you get to the question of what motivated them to play ice hockey, to join the Olympic team, whether it was a springboard to professional uh, a professional career or just because it's their particular passion or whatever. And you take the individual stories, they each had their own arc. What happened when they went into the Olympics? What happened subsequent to the Olympics afterwards? So I would say that the an arc of the, this kind you you collect the people who were in the room when Mandela delivered that speech to say, you know, you are welcome to stay. You do not have to leave. Then, you know, backwards from what caused them, especially those who are not white, to want them to be in public service in the first place. And I'll bet you that their motivations were wide and varied as well, ranging from things like patriotism of, of a different sort to necessity, because it was the only opportunity that they had to support their family or whatever, and follow those arcs. And, you know, it would look a, probably look a lot like current public service, but in extraordinary circumstances. And then to be able to t uh, find out from them what is it that uh, they took away from the experience of, of that and what it, how it changed, for example, a lot of public servants uh, have their children enter public service as well. What do they tell their children? What do they encourage others to take up service? So we recently recorded Burden Stalker Management of Innovation. And there is one of the parts we didn't discuss. It's kind of a small thing in the book that they're talking about the interaction between organizations and their environment and how it's interesting they were talking about how society was becoming more fragmented and actually organizations are one of the few places because they're talking about, you know, the arrival of TV so people don't spend as much time together in public spaces. It's more like, you know, a domestic life and people are separating different neighborhoods and so on. So organizations are places in which people from different classes, experiences, backgrounds meet 
And then organizations need to deal with that because they are, have an intersection of people from different tracts of society. And I'm saying all of this because what happens in organizations is that, of course, they have people have their own individual arcs and motivations, but something happened. They are socialized in a particular culture or mission. And of course, people may resist or just don't believe or some have a different interpretation. Of course, there's so much variation. It's not that everyone is inculcated and follow through. But at the same time, they need to accomplish work. They need to have this interaction with other people and interdependencies and spend time together in a particular space or around particular tasks. And if we think what we just said before about the role of interactions and how change depends on that, that does something. So I never watched this documentary. It sounds very interesting, Tom. But I think that in the story, especially of team sport, is that being in a team does something to people, right? Because they start to see that they have a joint task that animates them, that they feel a sense of responsibility. And, you know, the vision, it's, it, it assumes a different set of things. We know from that from participation in any type of, you know, community team, organization, our own experience. So I think the challenge, and I'm saying all of this, is exactly to the extent that it's able to be constructed, diffused, inculcated, produced, so to speak. How to get all these individual characteristics and arcs and ideas and motivations and do something with that, which is never going to be complete and is not necessarily going to be fully shared. But I think the challenge of organizing many times is exactly that. Yeah. And I think that uh, there's a there's a saying that history is often written by the winners. Not every nation in uh, Africa had the same opportunities to uplift so soon after decolonization or whatever as, uh, as South Africa uh, did. How might have uh, these uh, the experiences compared with other locations where where the story didn't it didn't end out so favorably? You know, it's very appealing to learn from those that from those stories where the outcome was very very successful, uh, very clearly successful or very clearly better. Um, but that could skew us in the lessons that we take and apply to other circumstances. We also have to recognize. What are the stories, the situations where it didn't turn out so well? And what can that teach us about organizing? No, Tom, that, that is a, a perfect point. I mean, early in the movie, uh, the father of Pinar actually says, look at Zimbabwe, right? They will steal our jobs and drive us into the sea. Zimbabwe being an example of uh, where things didn't work out that well, especially at that time. Uh, I mean, maybe uh, to r reflect on uh, what, what can we learn from uh, other experiences. Um, when I was there in 2005, things changed, did change a lot in, in the years since uh, Ella went to uh, lead the country, of course. But in the town I, I lived uh, for half a year, which was Pochefstroom, a, a small university town, uh, like one and a half hours drive west of Johannesburg, conservative town. There was no formal apartheid, of course, anymore, but that was still informal segregation a lot and probably today still. I mean, the things we mentioned on being black, you played football, being white, you played rugby. I, as a Dutch European citizen, 
of course played football in the uh, in the university team but there was this one one incident that the, one of the rugby teams uh, drove by and booed us and and uh, made monkey sounds towards uh, me and my teammates and a lot of formal segregation was still part of um, the experience uh, the actual uh, mundane and, and daily experience of people in uh, living in, in in this specific uh, city i mean there were all this was a very conservative uh, town so we can learn from not only other countries uh, what things changed in a different way or maybe failed, but also from the uh, small-scale experiences uh, within South Africa then, but also now. What is happening within uh, cities and rural areas within uh, South Africa now? How is the institutional change that occurs? How does it live up to the dreams that were part of that, uh, that change? Actually, the continuation, like Pedro was saying, how does the values of, of the, the desired change still live on today? And how are they lived up to by the people living in uh, in South Africa? And they do great work and good work. And still, there is often a lot of uh, work to be done. I mean, these processes take decades and not just a few years, of course. And we know that from other change, major societal change processes like you have in the US like we have in uh, in Europe and, and probably also in uh, Brazil. But looking back, going to the local situations, that would tell us a lot about the way the change is experienced and still lives on uh, in uh, the citizens of South Africa today. So I have perhaps more rosy takeaway because yes, change is hard and unfortunately inequality or racism or any kind of, you know, similar dynamic reproduce itself. So it's a perpetual struggle. But I think that what I took away from the movie is the power of imagination. That one needs to be able to see some examples to just start imagining what can be different, to shift the narrative a little bit, to rethink agency and possibilities. I was thinking about that in connection because I recently rewatched Black Panther, the new movie, right? And I was also reading recently the work of... Deborah Dougherty, which has studied innovation for a long time. And you may wonder what they have in common. Well, one of the things that Deborah tells in one of her papers is that some organizations that she studied that seem to be a bit better at being innovative were such because the managers and the employees and all the different people there were able to imagine their roles their processes, the different elements that make up organizations in a particular way. So, you know, we could say that they had a particular culture in which they saw themselves, you know, as, for example, as active participants in suggesting, brainstorming, bringing ideas and so on, versus one in which they were felt that they were more just, you know, follow whatever is in place and maintaining the system. So she talks about how, even though the elements are similar, but the way people imagine their own organizations to function and how they behave accordingly is an important dimension of the story. So transposing that, she was talking about innovation and creating products and services. But there is something similar here in understanding the possibility and one's role and agency into that. I think that stories like this and the way in which Mandela was able to champion the rugby team and everything that went into that as an important symbol of what can be possible is also a powerful message and somewhat it gives me some hope. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. 
The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you when we present another classic reading on organization theory or management science here on Talking About Organizations.